Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, Novartis, and Notal Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome back to Back to Practice, uh, New Retina Radio. And tonight we have three wonderful guests, and we're going to be talking about two main subjects uh, on tonight's podcast. We're going to be talking about telemedicine and how it's impacting our patients, how we're using it during COVID-19. And then we're going to talk about combating patient information. And joining me tonight, we have some really great guests. We have Judy Kim, who is a professor of ophthalmology at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we have Byron Ladd, who is a former Bloomberg Award winner and a partner at the Virginia Eye Institute in Virginia. And we have Carl Regillo, the chief of the retina service at the Wills Eye Hospital and professor of ophthalmology at the Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Thank you all for joining me. I'm John Kitchens with Retina Associates of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. Today is September 29th, 2020. And worldwide, we have 33.5 million cases of COVID with just over a million deaths. And in the United States, we have 7.1 million cases with uh, 205,000 deaths. So Judy, let's start with you and just find out how are things in Milwaukee? So Wisconsin um, is one of the states with increasing COVID uh, positivity. And um, uh, most of it is actually uh, due to college. Uh, having opened up and uh, uh, one of the top 10 cities of high, highest incidence is La Crosse, unfortunately. Um, and that's where one of uh, the University of uh, Wisconsin campus um, is located. So I, I think, you know, um, we were doing really well and we still have uh, um, uh, enough capacity, uh, fortunately. And um, uh, the positivity rate is going up. But uh, fortunately, uh, I think during this time, we have learned how to take care of our patients better in the ICU and in the inpatient units. So the morbidity um, and mortality uh, seems to be more manageable. Judy, are they changing anything from a societal standpoint that's making it more difficult for patients to, to come in and see you? Actually, uh, um, not. Uh, we uh, uh, um, haven't had too much problem, except <laughs> it has nothing to do with the uh, pandemic, but more of the uh, uh, social injustice um, with the uh, protests and riots. So one of our um, uh, city, uh, about 40 minutes south of Milwaukee, um, was affected uh, during the uh, protests and um, uh, some of my patients, many patients who come from there, um, felt a little uneasy about coming uh, or um, felt somewhat despondent. So, um, you know, making a point of talking to each and every one of them when they come in, not just uh, regarding their eyes, but also their mental state, you know, a mental state, how they're doing, uh, making sure they're not uh, depressed or um, stressed out. We're all stressed out, but uh, you know, uh, making sure they're managed, managing well, um, and uh, answering any questions that may have besides their eyes, but more about uh, how to handle uh, and live in this uh, new world. That's, that's a great point. We will talk a lot about that in the last part of this. Byron, you're in Richmond, Virginia. How are things in Richmond? Uh, Richmond, we're pretty much back to full speed. We, we, uh, the, the rate incidence of COVID has been pretty flat. 
Um, we've had some outbreaks in some of the colleges. Uh, but as far as our practice goes, we're back to 110%. You know, we cut down 50% during the early phases, at least in the retina group. I'm in a multi-specialty group, so we have a lot of general ophthalmologists. But, you know, the general ophthalmologists dropped down to about 10% of their usual schedule. Um, we maintained about 50% so that we could stay open for patients that needed treatment. Um, and now, you know, we were shut down for about eight weeks, and now we're back up full speed, 110%, trying to catch up. Um, for patients that uh, delayed their treatment and for patients that continue to need it. And, and you're in a unique position being in a multi-specialty group. Are your general ophthalmologists back up to full speed as well? Pretty much. Yeah, they, they, are, they are back up to full speed. Um, surprisingly, we're seeing the uh, older patients, they want to get their cataract surgeries done. They, they want to get their glasses. They put off getting glasses and, and now they're coming in to even get glasses and cataract surgeries. So our general ophthalmologists are back up to 100% also. And did you see patients who couldn't find a way to see you when you were when your anterior segment guys were shut down or limited? Did you see some vision loss because of that? Patients who may have put off a detachment and whatnot? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from you know retinal detachments that had persisted for a month to patients that converted in an, in their other eye. Um, or, or new conversion, you know, they might have dry macular degeneration converted uh, during the um, epidemic. Um, yeah, they come in with a decline in vision and now we're trying to get them back. You know, maybe we had them maintained on every three month intervals and now we're treating them monthly to try to regain as much vision as we can um, because of the delay. And Carl, in, uh, in Philadelphia, you guys have really been almost a gold standard for an East Coast city, doing so, so well. Are you continuing to do really well? Yeah, we are doing uh, well. We were hit moderately hard um, early on when the peak of the crisis, late March, April, May, when virtually everything was shut down. Our practice wasn't shut down, though. Of course, we kept seeing patients. But um, uh, as you know, New York City and New Jersey got hit really hard, and in our practice, um, which is based in around the Philadelphia metropolitan area, we, we cover South Jersey. So it, we were definitely affected in that way. Um, and it was pretty bad. Uh, our patient volume was down to about 25% uh, during those two to three months when things were peaking in the Northeast. And I guess you would say still the, the, the main peak of the United States. Um, we are, I would say, for the most part, back to our usual numbers. We've made lots of changes and accommodations to keep patients spread out in time and space, of course, to keep everyone safe. We're still in that mode. Of course, we have to be. Um, but I'm actually not sure I'm seeing um, all our patients back because I'd say on any given day, 10, 12 of my patients uh, that I might see uh, are patients that have been rescheduled that were six or 12 month follow-ups from that time when we were rescheduling patients. Because of course, during the, the peak of the pandemic, uh, we were rescheduling all the non-essential, non-urgent cases and, uh, or, or examinations, encounters. And we're now catching up with that. So uh, I'm not 110%, I'm probably 100% of my usual volume, but that means I'm still probably, some patients are still probably not quite making it back. And you guys have a lot of offices, Carl. Do you guys yeah. see regional variability? With, yes. Uh, oh, really? How is that? Do you see it like yeah. lower rates in New Jersey and higher, you know, show up uh, patients who show in Philadelphia? Um, sort of as an um, extension of what Judy said, the urban environment got hit 
the worst. One, because the numbers were the, the, heart, the uh, greatest there. And two, patients were afraid to come to the city. One, during COVID, and also with some unrest more recently for obviously different reasons. Um, but nonetheless, uh, as you know, we're sort of hub and spoke. Wills is sort of central. We have all these satellites, north, west, east, and south, into South Jersey and into Delaware. Um, the further you went away from the city, I think there was less impact. First of all, COVID wasn't as, um, as prevalent. So um, people weren't quite as afraid, uh, perhaps. Um, I would say in general, elderly everywhere were afraid for good reason. Um, the, the ones that were most vulnerable, the patients, the people at risk, um, and, you know, they, that was an, an accurate perception. It wasn't just a, a, a misconception that, you know, they, they, they're at risk. They were. Um, but uh, now uh, people are feeling more comfortable. We've had a very good track record, and I try to convey that uh, to reinforce patients uh, to want to keep coming in on a regular basis so that we don't lose them again. As Byron mentioned, we... Uh, we, we all have our anecdotes of patients that were lost to follow-up or had delay in care. We're even now, uh, one of our fellows is putting together data that clearly show patients that presented with retinal attachment, we had a much higher percentage of patients that were MAC off compared to the same time frame last year or the year before. And so we know patients were coming in late, just like our cardiology colleagues were, were showing that patients were having their MIs at home and not going to the hospital because they were afraid. So Carl, That's inter really interesting, Carl, because uh, even today I had a full day of clinic and um, I had three patients. I mean, I thought I, I was already caught up uh, not caught with up. all my rescheduled patients, but they show up and I'm like, where have you been? Why didn't you come back? Um, so, yeah. couple, you know, one said he got hospitalized in between. I mean, these are elderly patients, so they get sick too, in addition to being afraid of coming in. Um, and, and then uh, I find that well, your edema is worse now. <laughs> we have to start all over again. Yeah, so, I think so if we don't get a, a true second wave, I think it's going to take me another six months to truly get caught up. One, for the patients that missed visits or were rescheduled mm -hmm. uh, during the peak. And two, as Byron said, sort of catching up on uh, care that uh, sort of got out of control. It, didn't, it wasn't well controlled, we'll say. And uh, now we got to get the wet AMD or the DME back right. under control with more frequent treatments, more frequent visits. How well, do we avoid this going forward, Carl? Well, hopefully we, we, you know, as a society, we continue to exercise all the precautions. We're certainly doing that uh, locally in our offices. Uh, we're stressing, in fact, uh, office manager emails are going out regularly stressing to our staff to, hey, please be careful out there. Um, so, you know, we want to protect ourselves, our patients, everyone. We have to all do the right thing. So, um, of course, adhering to the guidelines, continuing to wear masks, uh, continuing with sterilization or, or um, protocols to keep the environment clean, uh, doing all that for, I, th I think, for quite a ways to come. Um, I mean, I, patients will say, I'll see you in the spring. Maybe we won't be wearing masks then. And I say, well, I wouldn't probably say spring, maybe next summer or so, because, you know, by the time we, we get immunization truly out there in society, it's going to take, you know, many months to roll out. We're going to be well into 2021 before uh, things, I think, resemble norm, true normality. So Byron, you use uh, the 4C home device, home monitoring for your patients. What kind of role does it play in this uh, pandemic? Yeah, so I, I've 
have been using the device for several years. I was, I think I was an early adopter just because I was close to the headquarters and, and was able to meet with the representatives from NOTAL early on. Um, and I think in this pandemic, it's been very important because the patients have this sense of security that even though they can't make it in for their regular visit, um, that they're being monitored. And I've seen that even before the pandemic, you know, you tell somebody they have macular degeneration and their first thought is they're going to go blind. Um, but then you can reassure them with this device that is that they can participate in their care. And by utilizing the device, the study shows that 95% of the time we'll pick them up with visions better than 2040. And you compare that to, you know, iris registry data where we're getting them around 2080, it's much better. So, you know, giving patients the, the tools that they can use so that they can self-test at home in a more sensitive and accurate fashion than just using the Amsler grid, I have found has been very important for the patients and the patients through the pandemic that come in, I feel less concerned for them and I wish that I had a larger percentage of my patients on the device, particularly through the pandemic. Can our older patient population use this device easily or is it something, it seems very technologically advanced. Is it something they struggle with? Well, I think, you know, most of our elderly population are pretty advanced technologically. And, you know, they're using computers, they're using iPads and Kindles to read with. Um, you know, that's my most popular low vision recommendation is to start using a Kindle. But um, so if they can, if they use a smartphone or a computer, they can use the device. Um, it's, it's no more than just utilizing the mouse um, to click on the, the lines as it flashes in front of you. They usually complain that they move too fast. Um, but unfortunately, that's part of the uh, requirement of the testing. Um, but they do very well. And, you know, 75, I, I asked earlier, uh, in the last couple of weeks, what retention I've had and 75% of the patients that I refer for the device end up using the device. Some of them, you know, decide not to uh, from the get go and others have trouble establishing a baseline. Um, but for the most part, it's well received. So Judy, you're, you're an advocate for this home monitoring as well. Um, tell us what can someone who's not using the 4C, what are some take home things that they could know about this to make them feel more confident or more knowledgeable in using it? Well, I'm an advocate because I was one of the uh, investigators in the home study that uh, allowed approval of uh, the uh, 4C home. And uh, there are many tr clinical trials. All of us have participated in an uh, in uh, investigator as a clinical trialist. But uh, this is one study where we actually had to stop the study early because there was a clear benefit of using the uh, 4C home monitoring versus the Amster grid alone. So um, um, I, I think having been a part of the investigation process makes me, and, and knowing the data and so forth, uh, makes me uh, a believer of it. Um, on the other hand, um, I do think that uh, it is more for patients who are uh, uh, highly motivated um, who uh, um, want to be engaged and be empowered about their eye care um, and who are um, a little more aware of what needs to be done. So it's not for everyone, uh, but for some uh, patients who are motivated or they have already uh, lost vision in one eye and they want to keep their other eye uh, very well monitored or someone who says, doctor, what can I do? What else can I do uh, to make sure I could catch this early? Uh, as Byron said, if we catch it early, we can keep that vision 
for um, good vision for a longer period of time. So um, I uh, tell the patient, you know, this machine will catch it earlier with less vision loss and more likely to have 20-40 vision. And that will allow you to uh, keep driving and keep reading. And um, uh, when patients start using it, I'm actually quite surprised at how compliant they are. Um, and some people actually get uh, hooked on it. And they uh, use uh, near almost every day. And I have some patients, uh, um, uh, snowbirds, who uh, carry it from um, snowy, cold tundra of Wisconsin to Florida or Arizona or Texas, where they, wherever they go for winter, because um, it's portable. It's small enough, and all you need is just plug it into an outlet. Uh, you, you don't need any special uh, equipment. And the, uh, the 4C home um, um, uh, data monitoring center, they are very in tune with how the patients are doing. Um, and they provide all the uh, help that's needed to set up and to continue. And there's a lot of dialogue going with the patients who are using it. So um, as a physician, uh, I wish more patients were on it. Uh, I wish more doctors uh, were prescribing it. Um, because even during this pandemic, I have actually caught some patients uh, through, uh, through the alert um, uh, at earlier stage of conversion, which I don't think I would have caught if we weren't using forcing home device for that patient. And Carl, is it a substitute for an examination uh, in this era of COVID? Is it something that you would put your patient on and instead of seeing them back in six months, you'd see them back maybe in 12 months because they have concerns about COVID and you know this will alert you or could, is likely to alert you if they have an issue? So I wouldn't call it a substitute. We, we wouldn't have data to support making that claim. Um, but uh, as Judy said, I can echo, I wish I had more patients on it. Um, I do have patients on it. It is a great technology, uh, as Judy and Byron have mentioned, proven to catch the transformation of dry to wet earlier when the vision is better. And we published and other groups have published, when you catch wet AMD when the vision is 2040 or better, you can keep them 2040 or better over 80% of the time out through two years or more. That's a powerful, powerful statistic because um, early intervention with our drugs, we get great results, great results. And um, I think those patients are also less likely to see atrophy when you catch them early when the lesion is small. That being said, about COVID, I wish during COVID I had more patients on it. And I do think patients probably would have been safer um, on it in having their examination or their encounter delayed for whatever reason, whether it's they're in the hospital or medical reasons, but um, during COVID, yeah, they were you know two, three, four months beyond their four, six month checkup. And, um, and I still wanna see them, I still wanna get an OCT. Um, and a few, a few other points about the use, it, it is uh, time intensive relatively for a patient takes three to four minutes per eye. So patients have to be uh, um, aware of that going into it. Uh, otherwise, you, you can lose them to disuse uh, of, the, of the device. Um, so you want to keep the compliance going. Um, and uh, they have to be 2060 or better in an eye. And even when they are, about 20% of the time, they don't establish a baseline. So they really, they can't use it going forward. But we still have a lot of patients that could be on it, should be on it, and would benefit from it. And now with COVID and trying to minimize office trips and, and uh, trying to keep everyone safe, it is really um, great technology for this setting. 
No, we have multiple uh, companies that are bringing forth home OCT. Is that going to be a substitute for this? Is it going to replace the home monitoring or do you think there's still a role for home monitoring when we do have home OCT? Well, home OCT, in fact, the, the versions I know of, and uh, they're probably going to roll out initially as an adjunct or a way to help us monitor our patient's response to wet AMD therapy. Uh, they're not necessarily at first going to um, be utilized, although they could be utilized um, to try to catch dry to wet transformation. Um, it is possible that in the future, they could replace the 4C technology uh, if you had a patient with dry AMD use it. Um, and of course, the patient that you're managing one eye and is dry on the fellow eye, um, that patient's probably going to be scanning both eyes. So in effect, they'll, they'll be following themselves. Um, you know, SDOCT is a great way, of course, a very highly accurate way uh, to detect uh, neovascular transformation early on. So it could, it could, but we have a lot to learn there. Um, I think right now it's, it's about um, uh, whether we do a treat and extend approach or a PRN approach with uh, therapeutics that are on the horizon that are lasting longer. It's, mm -hmm. It is going to allow us to um, have patients go longer and longer uh, without having to come into the office. Judy, you had a comment? Yeah, I think um, uh, initially it will be FDA approved for eyes that already have uh, wet AMD and uh, start the uh, anti-VEGF therapy and then it'll be used as uh, monitoring um, uh, that eye. But as Carl said, if the second eye is uh, intermediate AMD, uh, there's no reason why you can't do it and then catch uh, the conversion earlier. I, I think the beauty of uh, home OCT um, um, is that all the retina specialists know SDOCT so well, and um, um, the way it's going to be set up is going to be interactive. So uh, we as physicians could look at the OCT of the patient when they do it at home. So it's a truly tele, uh, uh, telemedicine where they're imaging uh, at home, but uh, the uh, uh, physician can look at that OCT as well in the office um, um, and be able to know uh, whether there's truly fluid or not. And also uh, another uh, way that uh, physician can interact is that we can set the bar, the threshold where the alert can go off. So uh, depending on our uh, each individual retina specialist's uh, comfort level and also how the patients have responded over time, you can set a certain level for Mrs. Jones and another level for Mr. Johnson. Um, and um, I think it, it is truly a way of a personalizing and individualizing uh, for each eye even. <laughs> Uh, not just the person. So I think it, there's a lot more um, interaction, um, even though it uses um, automatic artificial intelligence analysis. I think the physician has uh, also a lot more uh, control over what is uh, uh, considered a threshold and need to come in. So even if the alert goes off, we could actually, as a physician, look at the OCT before telling uh, the patient to come in. Uh, which is different than um, a 4C home where if there's an alert, uh, we usually just have a patient come in. Yeah, that would really make it nice for true telemedicine where you can then get on, uh, you know, something like Zoom and talk to the patient directly. Byron, last question on this subject. 
home monitoring and home OCT, are they competitive technologies or complementary technologies? Well, I think as, as Judy and Carl explained, they're going to be used differently. One's going to be used for screening the patients with the 4C home device that are intermediate AMD patients, and then the others for our patients that are being treated. Um, I, I think that the nice thing about home OCT will be it will get rid of a lot of the frustrations that the patients have with the current home monitoring, you know, that having to test, taking three minutes per eye, the line moves so fast that they feel that they're not seeing it. You know, was there a bump there or not? Those are the common complaints that you hear from the patients and the home OCT being automated and, and relatively having no interaction with the patient, except for them looking at the scanner um, will make it much easier on the patients. But as of now, um, they'll be complementary. One will be used for screening and the other will be used for monitoring once they've undergone treatment. Fantastic. Let's move on to patient misinformation. Byron, I'm going to come back to you. Are you experiencing a lot of patient misinformation in your clinic? Well, I mean, I think it, what are we referring to as misinformation? Uh, you know, if, if you talk to like, is it safe to come to the clinic? Um, that kind of information. I think that, that um, our patients, you know, initially were very concerned. And then once they saw all the protocols that we had in place, they felt very safe coming to the clinic. Um, you know, we're, we were having them wait in their cars. We were cleaning every room. We weren't having them move between other rooms. You know, we keep them in one room. So, so there was less contact. Um, so I think that the patients felt very safe that they could come to the, to the office. Um, now, of course, we're not in a hospital setting. They may feel a little more concerned about heading towards a hospital um, than a community-based practice. Um, but other than that, I mean, I, as far as what other types of misinformation you well, just misinformation about COVID itself, you know, concerns that they could catch it through their eyes, that, you know, that there could be greater risk by coming to see you. And then also, how are you getting this message out to those patients? Is it through Facebook? Is it through your website about the protocols and safety that you're that taking? Right. So basically on the, on the phone calls, you know, as we schedule these patients and bring them back in, they, they do have a lot of questions about what we're doing to um, lower their risk. And so we have long conversations, my staff, much longer phone calls um, than just scheduling, explaining to them what, you know, what the uh, experience is going to be like, you know, during the early part of the pandemic, you know, we spent so much time rescheduling patients, one, just trying to figure out who should come in and who shouldn't. Um, and then explaining to the ones who are coming in what measures we're taking and that we feel that it's important, you know, for them to come in. And what I was surprised with is, is how important we are to our patients. I mean, I always kind of took it for granted, you know, that we're just doing our job. But during this phase where, you know, they felt their life was truly at risk, they were coming in for their eye care. I mean, I had, I had more than one 90-year-old lady tell me she'd rather die of COVID than lose more vision. And so they kept coming, even though they'd have to quarantine for two weeks when they get back to their nursing home. Um, you know, it reinforced the importance of, of what we're doing for our patients. You know, Byron brings up a great point, and Carl, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. We are oftentimes the most frequent physician that our patients see. You know, they're coming in for every four or six-week injections. We get to know our patients. We have conversations with them. Are they asking you things about COVID? Oh, sure. Um, and as Byron said, you know, uh, these patients coming in knowing that, um, the doctors, the staff are putting themselves at risk. We're on the front line here. They're highly appreciative of what we're doing. 
and being there for them. I can't tell you how many thanks I got from patients that just said, thanks for being here. Thanks for being open. Thanks for, you know, seeing me and keeping me seeing. Um, and uh, I have to say, I, I'm going to look back fondly on a job well done because our experience was, was favorable in the sense that we've had no problems. We, we took all the precautions that were necessary, followed all the guidelines in the very beginning. And I'm not aware of, you know, knock on wood, uh, any problems uh, related to COVID, either uh, outside source, putting it in the office or us giving it to our patients. And so, um, and as Byron mentioned, you know, we used all avenues to get it out there to patients to make them comfortable so that they could come in and feel safe uh, on our website, signage, on the phone with the patients, especially those, of course, that kept rescheduling on their own as opposed to us rescheduling them, uh, just reassuring them that we've created a safe environment. Um, and, um, and we got through it. We got through it uh, well, and we've made adjustments that will probably carry on. Um, efficiencies and so forth. Um, our wait times are a lot less. We're much more conscious of it. Our staff, we all work better as a team in getting patients in and out because no one wants to be waiting and then start to have congregations occurring uh, of patients. And uh, that, that again, increases the risk. And so um, I think we've, we've taken away some lessons learned and better ways to practice um, in the future. And we'll, we'll carry on, including... Um, attention to uh, infectious diseases. It could be just the flu season, whatever that's gonna be in the future, the next bug that comes around after we get beyond COVID. Um, public health awareness in general is gonna be better in the United States worldwide and, and certainly in healthcare. Carl, do you think we'll be wearing masks going forward? Um, until we're truly over COVID, uh, we'll have masks on of course. I don't think we're going to necessarily, we, it, it's probably going to be intermittent, selective, you know, whether it be flu season or whatever. You know, some have brought up some concerns. You know, you, you try to solve one problem, you create another. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I had a, a post-injection endophthalmitis case just recently, so it's fresh in my mind. And uh, everyone's wearing masks. We're wearing masks. Our patients wear masks. We tape it because we don't want to get airflow and oral and nasal floor up in their eyes, and yet it still occurred. Uh, we can't eliminate these problems, and um, we certainly don't want the use of masks to, to introduce new problems. Some people claim it, it may increase the risk of oral floor in the eyes, for example. Um, so we're doing everything to try to prevent that. Um, so I'm not sure it's necessary or um, even beneficial to wear the mask if you don't have to. Gotcha, and Judy, what is your role in kind of dealing with some of these COVID-19 controversies, talking to patients about COVID-19, ensuring that our patients have a good understanding of how to be healthy? Well, I think uh, we do it by example. Um, even from the beginning, when we call the patient to remind them about their uh, appointment and talking about COVID symptoms, um, we, we have the callers have the script, but uh, uh, that educates them about different symptoms that they should be looking out for. And then when they come to the hospital, again, they are asked about these symptoms. And then, you know, while in the um, um, uh, office, I make um, additional efforts visibly by uh, sanitizing my hands multiple times, a lot more times than I used to, uh, right in front of them um, to show that it's important. Um, and um, I, I, 
I'm a Johns Hopkins graduate. We never wore scrubs outside of the OR. It was not looked upon favorably, but uh, during this pandemic, I'm wearing scrubs. Um, and in certain ways, it, to me, it's sort of like uh, armoring myself, putting my uniform on for, for that day's battle, because it is sort of like a battle. We never know when the next patient may have that COVID. So um, I, you know, and my hair's tied, tied up. Um, so they, the patients who've been seeing me for a long time, they know that I'm already uh, looking and behaving differently, uh, more cautious. Um, um, so I, I think that we do it by example and um, tell them, you know, mask is not a political statement. Uh, it is not about freedom. It is about health. I mean, I remember going to a store uh, in the beginning around April and uh, a gentleman in his late 60s or early 70s looked at me and said, you shouldn't be uh, uh, covering up your pretty face with a mask. I mean, it, it's wrong in so many different ways. That's so wrong in so many different <laughs> it's ways. It's so wrong in so many different ways, but um, I looked at him right in the eye and said, this, sir, is to protect you. Um, so, and that is what masks are. It's to protect my patient, and they are to protect me and my staff. It's we're in it all together. So, I sometimes feel like I'm playing a, a cheer role, um, a cheerleader role, um, and saying, you know, we can do this. Just this will pass. We can do it together. And I also find that many of my elderly patients are just by themselves. The kids are not even visiting, or they drop the groceries off in front of their door. They don't, they don't you know, come into the house, so they're lonely. Many of them are by themselves. Their spouses have passed or whatnot. One, one of my patients said, you know, Dr. Kim, I think I could speak cat language now because only living thing that I can talk to is my cat. And other patients say, um, Dr. Kim, coming to the Eye Institute is my event of the month <laughs> or event of the two months because they are not going out anywhere um, except to come to get their injections. So, um, and many of them have, you know, all have masks on, so it's hard to read their emotions as well. And many of them have a hard time hearing, so I have to enunciate what I say and talk more slowly and loudly so they can hear. So some of the things I'm um, being, you know, additionally mindful um, given this COVID era with the masks and other things and social situations. So I try to make their visit uh, worthwhile uh, by trying to reaching out emotionally and psychologically as well as ophthalmologically. That's a really beautiful point, Judy. The fact that our patients, our elderly patients don't get to see people. We may be the, the only person that they see on a month to month basis. And I find that being able to sometimes stop and realize, hey, wait a second, I need to spend more than three or four minutes with this person. I know I'm in a hurry. I know I'm behind, but this might be their only time out until they see me again next month. Uh, it's very, very profound. Hey, John, I have a question for the group. How many have adopted gloves for every patient exam? Is everybody know. doing that? Yeah. I, I do not, but for depressed eye examination where I'm actually touching, um, that's the only time when I'm putting the gloves on and the injection. But for a regular slit lamp, I have not, but I just sanitize like crazy before and after. That's a great well, question, Byron. Yeah, I keep debating it, and I always make sure that the patient sees me put the hand sanitizer on as soon as I go to the exam and I, and I always use gloves for the, for the injections, but, but for the exam, I, I have not started wearing gloves for every exam. 
So Carl, you're the one person amongst us that's yeah. doing it. What, why do you think that makes a difference? Well, um, I'm not sure it makes a difference um, because um, so before COVID, of course, I didn't wear gloves for anything, not even an injection. Uh, of course, I used sterilizing solutions uh, before and after touching any patient and before and after any injection or any procedure. Um, so it was probably adequate unto itself, just that. Um, and uh, then I got super compulsive about it during COVID and um I noticed that most of my partners were wearing gloves and um, and then I decided I'm going to start doing that too. Uh, one, because it was commonplace in other environments and I think it helps to remind us all to be a little more careful right now. I'm not saying it's a, it, it just, it's sort of like the notion of a mask sort of preventing people from touching their face. Um, this is in a way a constant reminder for me that there's a problem and I need to make sure I, I uh, adhere to uh, the, the highest standards of cleanliness as possible. Um, and um, not all doctors necessarily change the gloves with every patient, they'll sterilize the gloves. So it's effectively um, like not having them, but um, I think it, it helps. And perception is very important as, um, as Byron mentioned that it's important for the patient to see and I'll, take on and off my gloves in front of the patient and sterilize again. They want to see it. Patients will often ask when they come a room, is this been cleaned? Um, and of course we said yes, but um, it's, it is more comforting to actually see it being cleaned and know it's being cleaned. Cause I'm, for example, as things start to open up, I'll mainly, you know, maybe, maybe I'll go to an outdoor cafe now and I'm, you know, doing the same thing as my patients. I'm, holding my hands up wondering, I hope someone cleaned this because I didn't see it happen. Um, so, you know, yes, by the way, for masks, you know, I'm sure all our offices have strict mask wearing policies, we do. And we have sort of guidelines as to what acceptable masks are not and making sure both nose and mouth are covered. Um, and every office we have to designate an enforcer because occasionally you'll have a patient that comes in and refuses to cover completely or cover adequately. And um, it can get contentious. And so we have, you know, whoever is most adept at um, ne negotiations and speaking with patients uh, to be called upon uh, to, you know, stress the reason why. And like has been mentioned, this is not a political thing. It's to keep everyone as safe as possible. So we'll be doing this for a while. There's no doubt about it until yeah. things really uh, are behi uh, well behind us with this COVID-19. I can't wait to find out who the Will's Eye Institute enforcer is. We can Actually, at Will's Eye, it's a rather large man. <laughs> it's truly <laughs> like a bouncer. Uh, yeah. In the other offices, it's, off, it's uh, whoever is most skillful uh, at, uh, at uh, persuasion. Perfect. Well, listen, I want to thank you all for joining me. This has been a great panel, a lot of fun. Uh, I want you all to stay safe, and I want to thank everyone for tuning in to New Retina Radio, Back to Practice. Look forward to more episodes as we go forward. Thank you, guys. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan, Novartis, and Notal Vision. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, herein BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, 
guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.